Hello, Matthew. How you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's it's great to great to chat with you and, and all the entrepreneurs listening. Yeah, it's our pleasure to have you. It's really a treat. So, um, you know, if anybody does a little bit of research on Cloudflare and uh, and you personally, it's so impressive to hear that you're powering four percent of the web and. And it's just almost intimidating for for the little teams that are trying to build something you know world changing like you have already. Uh, what what was it like in the early days? How'd you get this idea started, or what was the itch that you're trying to scratch, and why you? So Cloudflare started all, four, more than four years ago now in uh, in 2009, and there were three of us. It was a, a small team. It was uh, myself. A guy named Lee Holloway, who I've worked with for the last ten years, who's just a technical genius, and uh, a woman named Michelle Zatlin, who I'd met in business school, who you know is is just one of those people who make sure that people get taken care of and make sure the trains run on time. And uh, that I, I don't think I mean Cloudflare started originally as a school project. We uh, Michelle and I were in business school, and oh, wow. I didn't want to take any more classes, and so. Um, we, we asked one of our professors if we could, instead of taking a class, if we could submit a business plan to the business plan competition at, in business school and uh, get credit for that. And, uh, and he said yes, and so Michelle and I started working on it. And I, mean, I remember that the night before the business plans were due we, is basically when we started actually writing ours up. So it wasn't... <laughs> Wow, or you know, or anything. And so, what was interesting was, I don't think either of us really knew that we were starting a company as we were starting the company. Okay. What we thought we were doing was looking for interesting problems that lots of people had, okay. figuring out how to solve those problems, and then describing it. And mm -hmm. it was sort of just a series of dominoes. We um, we we ended up uh, winning the business plan competition, which then got interest from a lot. Uh, venture capitalists. Well, um, hold on, hold on a sec. So you were looking for problems that a lot of people were having that were interesting. So obviously that's a that's a big sort of quest. How did you even go about like okay, this is a problem. A lot of, did you see a lot of blogs talking about you know denial of service attacks? What, what how did you know where did you come up with this problem? So uh, I've had to practice this in the mirror to say it without kind of laughing, but. Cloudflare's mission is to build a better web. Um, that wasn't what we set out to do initially. What we really set out to do initially was uh, Lee and I had worked together for 10 years, and before I was in business school, we had started a company together. And one of the things we built was this open source project called Project Honeypot. And what Project Honeypot did was it tracked sort of spammers and people that would do kind of malicious things to websites. Okay. And as a result of that, we, we had talked to hundreds of thousands of web administrators around the there, world. There we go. Okay. Yeah. It was always just a hobby, right? It was always just sort of a thing, but we had this real understanding of the fact that people who were running websites were really frustrated that they didn't have the tools to make sure their sites were fast, to make sure that they were secure, right. to stop spammers and hackers and other things from getting in. And, and the web administrators were always writing to us at Project Honeypot saying, hey, it's great you're tracking this, but can you actually stop that? Oh, there we go. So the germ of the idea was from this open source project and the community yeah. coming in and telling you their problem, their pain. And, the, and we originally, I mean, we tried to solve this in a number of ways over the years. We, uh, we originally thought that we'd build a piece of software that would be like an Apache plugin that would take the Project Honeypot data and then make that available. And it turns out that if you write a software company and you're writing software, you spend all your time just doing support because Apache upgrades, and then you have to rewrite the plugin. And, right. and that, we very quickly realized that, that we weren't going to be able to make that work. Um, when Michelle and I, so Michelle and I had met in business school, when I was sort of telling her about this idea, our original idea was we're going to build a, you know, a box, like a server that would sit in a person's data center and be able to solve the issue that way, um, and we really quickly realized that the market for boxes was really pretty small, and as more and more companies were moving to services like Amazon Web Services or Rackspace's mm -hmm. cloud, that call up Rackspace and say, hey, you know, I want to install a big box. It's a, it's a huge production to do it. If you call up Amazon and do it, they'll say, there's no way you can do that. And so we thought, is there some clever way that we can 
deploy the protection and the security and the performance and kind of all of the great stuff that web administrators want and do that without software and without a, a hardware. And if we could do that, we, we had a sense that there would be kind of a big market for it. But again, you know, when this started out, it was, it was an idea on a piece of paper. It was a business plan competition entry. It was a school project. Oh, yeah. it, it, it wasn't a business, and I think that's how actually most businesses. I, I know, but uh, but I, I, you know, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, you've got hundreds of these people in a specific sector and specific vertical telling you what their pains are. So this was germinating in the back of your head, and you even tried, you thought about it, and even had these mock-ups or solutions. But it wasn't until the business plan competition and maybe the rise of AWS and some of the other things that maybe then the timing was right for this particular solution. Yeah, I think, you know, it was, so we'd been working on this problem in one way or another since 2004, so almost 10 years. Um, and it, it, Cloudflare probably wasn't possible when we started working on it in 2009 for, for a lot of different reasons. Um, bandwidth was too expensive uh, in order to make the pricing work. Um, servers were, the software that was written on servers weren't taking advantage of all of the um, efficiencies that new chips had and and you didn't have the pricing for storage um, like the hard disks that are running on those servers that had gotten uh, low enough for fast enough storage mm -hmm. and so it just happened that uh, sort of three things came together all at the right time in 2009 so right. one was the you know through video services like YouTube and everything, the price of bandwidth just collapsed, yeah, collapsed yeah. to you know offer our service in a way that was affordable to anyone. And, it, and again, it was pretty radical at the time that we said, yeah, well, of course we're going to offer a free service because um, we want to make this available to as much of the web as possible. Right. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing was um, we had you know software that for the first time was written take advantage of these massively multi-core, massively multi-threaded processors so that we could get an enormous amount of efficiency. efficiency yeah. Otherwise, this becomes just too expensive to even start to build a network that is large enough to scale to the size that we're at. Right. And then the thing was, you know, because of Apple and, and all of the mobile devices that were out there, the cost of flash kept dropping to the mm. point that while we had originally spec that we'd have sort of spinning media and then flash and then you know all of these different tiers of storage and a huge amounts of complexity, we realized very early that we if, if we could get the price down far enough for flash, then we could just deploy nothing but flash at the edge, which meant then we could wow. get much yeah. faster performance, yeah. And again, in two thousand eight that definitely wasn't possible. In two thousand nine we were kind of right on the cusp. And then two thousand ten when we actually start building the network, it actually worked. And so right. you know a lot of these things if you start with a problem and you keep thinking about like how can we solve this and looking at how the market changes, oh, yeah. then that's where you get real disruption and, and the ability to offer a service that you know can really attack a, a problem from the bottom up. So, right. yeah, yeah, absolutely. You weren't taking the uh, enterprise top-down approach, that's for sure. You were listening to all the sysadmins and I think part of your solution in being part of kind of the cloud is also like you said those sysadmins everyone can kind of put up a website which is the beauty of the internet but like you said you can quickly get into the uh, pitfalls of uh, all of the uh, hassle of adminning it, the security and the speed and the scaling issues. That's right and it's you know so we I, I was just um, so TechCrunch uh, has a has an event every year. It's the TechCrunch Disrupt event, mm -hmm. and, and that's where we launched. and um, And I was just a judge there last week, and I had you know I had thought I've been thinking about it for a long time about what was it like we haven't done any marketing or we just don't do that. We haven't done anything other than that initial launch event, and that's really what's propelled us. Amazing. You know, and and I. And I try and figure out, like, I see these great companies that are, frankly, are a lot smarter than we were, um, that are launching there, and they don't find that traction. And I think that just we were very fortunate, and I, I would love to say that this was, this was a huge amount of insight and kind of like we still make it as we go along. Um, but it was because of the fact that the audience there, almost everyone in the audience had a website, mm -hmm. meant that they could immediately sign up and use it because of the fact that we'd made it friction-free to sign up so that it was, it was super easy that you could spend five minutes, sign up, and then you would immediately see a, a benefit. Right. What that meant is you know, we, had, we had a thousand users going into the event. We scraped and 
you know, scrapped and bagged and, you know, did everything we could to get those first thousand users. I mean, even, even though we were like, the service is free, it's still right. hard. To get it's still hard to get people to adopt. Absolutely. And then yeah. the next day we had, you know, 10,000. Wow. And, and that started the flywheel. Oh my goodness! This is this is like the wow. magical sort of uh, the growth that everybody hopes for, <laughs> and you were able to capture that. That's that's incredible. I mean, this the whole story is amazing, actually. It was, but you know, it was really terrifying too, because like I remember sitting backstage at Disrupt, and there were thirty-seven bugs that if they didn't get fixed, the service wouldn't work. Right. And we're sitting backstage. All of the engineers at the time, our team was eight, and so everyone was sitting in the audience. And we have a, a chat room where, where like, the team is on and we were watching. And you would see someone go, okay, I got number seven. Okay, I got number you know, 14. Okay, I got number two. Wow. And as Bill and I walked on stage, there were like five people. <laughs> Holy cow. We, right down to the wire. I wonder what's going to happen. And, it was, uh, and, and we walked out and we turned it on. And, you know, the problem with offering a free service is that if everyone does sign up, you have to make sure that you know the wheels of the bus stay on, mm-hmm. and we did a pretty good job of that. But boy, the the next few days when when people kept signing up and it kept growing, there were there were a lot of sleepless nights, and uh, and I'm glad uh, I'm glad it all held together. So wow. it's uh, it's actually gotten easier over time. So, yeah. <laughs> That's a great story. Uh, you know, with the the product, I think that you have two main advantages: the the security and then also the performance. Um, can you tell us a little bit how those two things play together, and what uh, is you know what what the your customers are looking for, either one more over the other? Yeah. So, um, so l- let me. I'm going to answer that in a in a in a sort of non-answery way. Um, the so we just think that I actually think that like that that's that's how we describe ourselves as the you know web performance and security company. In reality, I don't even think that's accurate. Um, the The challenge is that that that, Im- that implies sort of a false choice, like that people want performance or security, and and that's sort of just that's us trying to fit into the model that made sense yesterday. But I don't think that's the same model that's going to make sense tomorrow. So the way that I think about a web infrastructure is that it's got three core tiers to it. So at the at the lowest tier, you've got the store and compute tier. Um, and that yesterday used to be, you know, EMC or Hewlett Packard, right. and tomorrow that's Amazon Web Services and Rackspace. A lot of your listeners are already have made that jump. Bigger and bigger companies are making that jump every day, and so that's kind of the inevitable direction. Um, above that is the application tier, and yesterday that was Microsoft and Oracle, and tomorrow that's Salesforce and Google, right? Um, mm-hmm. And the here is moving from capex and software and hardware to opex operating expenses and um, uh, services and cloud and those those sorts of things. So those are the two tiers. When people talk about the cloud, most people are thinking about. There's a third tier that people don't think about as much, although it, it really shows up in the hardware world. So um, anything which would be an edge service is in this edge tier. And, and it's easiest to think about it in, in kind of the old school world where you would have like a, a load balancer from a company like F5 or you'd have a security device from a company like Imperva or a DDoS mitigation device from a company like Arbor Networks or um, a WAN optimization device from a company like Riverbed. Really specific utilities. Yeah, and these are these, are these narrow little verticals which... Mm-hmm. Um, which which makes some sense um, in in an old box world. What we think we're building at Cloudflare is a replacement for everything that sits at that edge tier. Mm-hmm. And so, if it used to be a device or it used to be software, and you stuck it out and it was the first line of where your traffic came in, and it didn't need to know anything about the application which was running behind it or the data store that was running behind that, then that's a perfect opportunity for us to be building building um, a solution. And so, sure, that's performance, uh, CDN-like services, that's security, um, but that's also load balancing, that's DDoS mitigation, that's WAN optimization. That's what's- so I'm, I'm, I'm curious here, uh, Matthew, did you come up with this sort of uh, strategy recently, or has this always been, I mean, it sounds to me like a more recent discovery. That- it's, 
you know, it's always we have we have internally struggled from the very beginning to say there is so much we can do if we build a hyper efficient flexible platform and there are a lot of different applications that can be slotted into that um, and those applications include security and performance and things like that but you know at core what we think we're building is this platform that exists out at the edge that can deliver a whole bunch of services that make sense like the, the somewhat flip way that I describe what it is that we're we're doing like if you ask our users you say if you say, you know, do you want, did you sign up for performance or security or DDoS mitigation or one of these things, then, you know, it gets spread out and, and we have some sense of that. But if you just give them a blank white box and you say, why did you sign up for Cloudflare? Yeah, yeah why did you? The reason they put in the box, and it, and it comes up, it doesn't matter if you're a huge multinational bank or an individual blog, they, it's creepy that people say the same thing over and over again, which is, I want my website to run like Google.com. We're the team that's going to make it like Google.com. Or another way of saying it, what we've done at Cloudflare is we've invented this alien device, and we sneak into the bedroom of the the team member at Google, whose whose title is Senior Vice President of Technical Operations. We sneak into his, his room every night, we put the device on his head, and we suck all of the knowledge out of his head and the team under him. And under him is, you know, the security team and the networking team and the performance team. And then we sell that. That's and great. that's that's, that's exactly a, what it is. You know, it sounds to me like uh, that's such a really overly simplistic way of expressing a desire it, or a need. It takes a, take a lot to invent the alien device, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, I want my site to run like Google.com. Done. If we could just get that. Uh, and it just never goes down. It's just like I, this utility that's rock solid. That's what I want. Yep, and that's exactly. I mean, that's that's what people want, and that's the gold standard. And Google will never use us, but under Google, almost you know, almost everyone else down that chain, it doesn't take very far before you start hitting customers where you're like, oh, yeah, okay, Wikipedia, you can see them using us, and you can see Yahoo. Yes, and you can, Facebook already uses Akamai, so you can see them using us. And then you don't go down much further than that, and you start to hit big. Customers that use us, like Imager uses us, and a lot of other large sites that that a huge amount of the internet is relying on, rely on our infrastructure to be the front end. And so that means we have to do intelligent things like load balancing and DDoS mitigation. We're we're the edge of the network for them, so, and that's that's what we're building. So Matthew, I, I really would like to not go too deep in the technicalities. I want to keep this really entrepreneur focused. So yeah. going back to the early days and the business win and the competition win, how did you initially build your team? Once you realized, hey, we won the competition for Christ's sakes, there's something here. How did you go about building the team? And then how do you how did you convince some of these smart people to come on? Did you have a lot of money? Did you raise some money? Let's talk about that. Yeah. So we um, I don't think it was the the bit we weren't convinced that the I mean the business plan competitions. I mean it's. Who knows who wins? Uh, I mean that, so that wasn't enough to convince us. So I think Michelle and I um, were still very much up in the air about whether we were going to turn this into a real business. Um, we we had an offer from uh, Highland Capital, which is a, a venture capital firm out here, that we could come be entrepreneurs and residents oh. uh, in the summer. So we were based in Boston, okay. and, and Lee was based out in California. And so we said, we'll move out to California, and we'll just spend the summer trying to figure out if this is a real business. Oh, that's great. And of course, that offer didn't come in until you won the competition, so obviously winning was a big, big step. There. That's right. And it was, I mean, it was funny. They, um, we met, I remember we met with the Highland Capital folks, and, uh, and they said, um, gosh, it would have been great had we known about you earlier, because we have this entrepreneur in residence program, but the applications just closed, and, and we just selected everyone. And the deal was they would they would essentially pay you a salary and they didn't take any equity and, and they gave you all the space. It was great. Oh, that sounds uh, great, yeah. I remember that the partner left the room and it was just Michelle and I were standing there and we looked at each other and we were like, well, he controls the program, right? And he's the deadlines. So when he comes back in, let's say, hey, we'll sign up for that if you want us. I mean, 
you can take another team, right? right. And you know, it was just a good lesson in you never get anything unless you ask for it. That's we right. Asked, yeah, you got to ask. Yeah, you got to ask. And they, and they were terrific. And so we came out here and we spent the summer, again, Michelle had Michelle had offers to go with LinkedIn and, and a bunch of other, you know, very successful companies. And, and I had other plans that I was doing and Lee was getting courted by you know, Google and Twitter and Facebook and a whole bunch of other other companies that were that were rocket ships and on their own, and it wasn't clear that this was going to work. And I was, you know, we we'd made a little bit of money through the Entrepreneur in Residence program, but you know, I was down to the point of thinking, you know, how am I going to make rent uh, next month if uh, if we don't if we don't figure this out? And so we got down to the point of, you know, are we gonna are we gonna do this or not? One thing we didn't do was we didn't just start out pitching people like crazy. We didn't, that sort of myth of running up and down Sand Hill Road, just pitching venture capitalists after venture capitalists after venture capitalists, that's actually a pretty harmful myth to, to startups. Um, when you start asking for money, a clock starts ticking, and, and if every venture capitalist who says no to you, yeah, yeah. that your value just keeps exactly. going down. Exactly. Yeah, the dominoes start. Yeah, you're not going to be able to get in. Yeah. And so if you're if you're pitching to people who aren't able to or aren't willing to say yes, then it's it's really a waste of of your time and of their time. And so we spent the, almost the entire summer making a list of who it was that would be the ideal investor for us. So is this before you built a prototype or do you, what, yeah. what, did a landing page, a mini site or anything? I mean, what did you, like, is this we just built, business plan in hand? Or how, was, what, what did you show to these people? Like? We built a very rudimentary, completely non-functional kind of demo, um, which we whipped together, which has looks nothing like what the product looks like. It was... Um, what I had done is I'd actually taken the the HTML from Gmail. Like if you go to the original view of Gmail, we took the HTML from that, and then Lee built a little back end, and then every time a request would come to a web server, it would show up like a mail message, essentially, and you could either block it or trust it or, or apply rules, and then that would actually affect the rest of it. Not a single piece of that code lives anywhere out there, but it was a handy little demo that... Um, that had some visual to it, but largely again, piece of paper, and we um, and we so we spent the time really trying to figure out who is it that would understand this space or be really excited about it, mm. and uh, we made a list, and at the top of the list was a guy named uh, Ray Rothrock, who's probably the leading security investor um, in in Silicon Valley, and through a series of connections, we got introduced to a so an associate that worked with him. Oh, oh, okay, that you're said a lot right there. Okay, so let's unpack this. So you you obviously have a security product. This is the security problem you're solving. You decided right. to not do the performance for right now. We're just solving the security thing. We came yep. up with a list of investors that were excited about the whole security sector vertical. And then right. you, how did you reach out to these guys? <laughs> you said it's through a series of connections. Did, did you find maybe the second degree on LinkedIn and then did the in-mail? How, how did that exactly work? Yeah, so, you know, there are, there are lots of reasons why going to business school doesn't make sense if you're going to be an entrepreneur, but one reason why it does make sense is that you have a, a very, very deep network uh, when you come out of that. So um, it happened that one of my classmates, um, Michelle and my classmates at business school, uh, had gone to elementary school in Bulgaria, of all the crazy things, with, <laughs> wow. the, with the associate that worked primarily with Ray. Oh, and, okay. uh, and, they, and so um, she said, hey, I will introduce you to this woman. This woman's name is Daphina, okay. and Daphina is, is, she's now a partner at uh, U.S. Venture Partners, and she's just an incredible venture capitalist, has a really good eye for entrepreneurs, and is doing great things, and so you know, right. if you're a young entrepreneur, um, she's definitely someone who should be on your, your radar screen, especially if you're working in sort of enterprise or deep tech um, kinds of things. Okay. Anyway, so she, um, we got introduced to Daphne. We met for coffee. We didn't actually talk about Cloudflare at all. We talked about us, and we talked about Project Honeypot and the things, and she said, Ray's going to love you. You know, can you come in and, and meet with him? That's good. And, we, and, um, and we started, we started, start, started talking to Ray, and he said, in about 15 minutes, he said, so I only have two questions for you. And he said, so the first question is, um, I have the authority to write you a half a million dollar check uh, without checking with the rest of the partnership. Will you take it? 
And I said, no. Michelle kicked me uh, under the table. And, uh, and Ray said, well, we gotta, I guess we've got to get you in front of the rest of the partnership then. Uh, why, why did you say no? I'm just curious. Because um, if he's willing to write a half-million-dollar check, yeah, he's willing he's, to – That's right. Yeah, you can probably get and, him to write a couple million. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And to some extent – and again, this seems this – seems, um, to entrepreneurs, this seems – it seems – counterintuitive it seems wrong it just seems it just it, it seems like exactly the opposite of everything we do but to some extent what you're worth um, especially early on is a function of how much money you raise um, I, this wasn't the first company that I that I'd started um, the last company I started we raised money from friends and family and angels and all kinds of random folks um, that I'll never do that again um, that has lots of consequences yeah. that are that are negative. A, a lot of them you don't see until later later in life, um, and so it seems like it's easy. But when things are going really well, um, it turns out that, that the incentives aren't aligned with later stage investors and the early stage investors. When things are going really poorly, it means you don't get invited to Thanksgiving dinner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Burn the burn the family. Yeah. And so you know, we knew from the beginning we wanted to work specifically just with professional investors and VCs, and so we went directly to them from from the beginning. Um, and so that was uh, that then meant that we wanted to do a VC like. Series A round, but this was—I mean, it was a tough time. You have to remember back to 2009. Oh, yeah. We were the only internet investment that Venrock did in all of 2009. I know it was—it was a horrible time. The whole yeah. 2008, 2009, yeah, yeah, horrible. And so it was. Um, and so it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't a no-brainer. But to some extent, like as on, I think entrepreneurs would be well served to spend some time understanding exactly the structure of how VC firms work and the pressures that are within. A partnership, right? These are typically a group of friends who got together through some set of circumstances right. and agree to work together for ten years, which is a long time. That's right. That's right. And, and they have they have lots of pressures for how, who's going to do what, and 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 you know the senior guys who've been getting a lot of deals have a lot of pull. The younger guys have to sort of ch trade favors, like I'll vote for your deal if you vote for mine. Okay. And, Kind of understand what it is that motivates venture capitalists. I think that a lot of their behaviors become a lot more rational. Which is, so where do VCs don't print money? They don't have you know the treasury sitting in the basement with a giant money printing press. They have to go raise it from LPs that are out there somewhere. And LPs are like big pension funds and all kinds of things. And they don't the LPs don't particularly care about any individual investment. But what they want to make sure is that a thesis is followed and. There's nothing which is out of the ordinary. And so mm -hmm. what ends up happening is how in the world do you value us early on? Like we're an idea on a piece of paper, and you can say, well, the market is huge or it's small or it's blah, 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 blah. But that's all. Let's call a spade a spade. That's, that's hand-waving at the end of the day. And so at the end of the day, the pressure that the LPs put on the VCs is that they say you need to – do things that are kind of normal and standard. And so the, the bum rap that VCs get for just being like sheep following the herd mm -hmm. is somewhat forced on them by the people that are investing money in them. Right. And so you know, at the time, so at any given moment, there's some multiple which says that if you raise X, then the company is worth X times Y. And so that Y number changes up and down. Um, today, you know, that might be four. So if you raise uh, $2 million dollars, then your post money will be four times that two million, so it will be eight. So it'd be like a four on eight. So, so um, you kind of instinctively knew that this formula existed, and you didn't want to just take that five hundred k right away. You kind of wanted to get that larger initial raise to obviously get a bigger valuation for you and your team. Right. So if we if we had raised if we'd raised five five hundred thousand, why still remains the same. So if that's four, then we're worth yeah, two million. Two million, yeah. Mm -hmm. right? So you're going to give up the same amount of your company early on, right. and so to extent pushing the raises up a little bit to get enough that you have traction to last for 18 months makes a lot of sense, right. and and then trying to make sure that you're as frugal as possible. So listen, I, I have to say, Matthew, uh, you know, uh, not really having a real functioning prototype. I know you kind of hacked together this Gmail thing, and you know, obviously all three of you guys flying out and. You know, there's a lot of pressure for you guys to take money, regardless. 
and uh, the economy's not doing that great. I mean, uh, but either way, you decided to, to risk it. And so what ended up happening? Did you end up getting a bigger initial uh, seed or? Yeah, so we 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 um, we pitched we pitched Venrock. Venrock was the only firm that we pitched, um, and we said we were looking for two million dollars, and they said they said we'll do it, and then we said, oh, by the way, we have this other firm that we've talked that I had a previous relationship with, um, and I said we want them to be involved, and Venrock wasn't super excited about that, but but it ended up working out, and so the two of them split the uh, split the round. It wasn't quite fifty fifty, but it was uh, it worked out well. Uh, two partners from the two firms joined joined our board, and uh, and so we closed that round in November of 2009. Um, December is kind of a lost month with the holidays, but I spent most of it just literally scouring LinkedIn trying to find um, you know different people who would be good fits for our yeah, team. Yeah, build a uh, team. Yeah. And that was and so and it was we knew that like Lee was this incredible scalability architect database guy. And we knew we needed some people who could write great, um, just C-level code, uh, and then help help in different pieces. And so um, Lee's wife uh, was getting her PhD at UC Santa Cruz, and there was another PhD student uh, who was interested. And so we hired we hired him. Um, and then through LinkedIn, um, I reached out to a guy named Mathieu Torren, who was it who was you know clear from his LinkedIn profile he was a really great. Uh, coder, but he was doing web design work, um, and he was a French citizen. And so, you know, oftentimes people who come from out of the country, if they can't get visas. They'll yeah, do they'll do other stuff. Yeah, to kind of get you. And so I just cold emailed him. Well, oh, okay, so hold on. This is a big deal. Uh, building your team, getting <laughs> good, talented people to join on. Maybe with an unproven, you know, business because I mean you just raised the round. How hard was that? Was it? Did you get yeses from a majority of the people that you emailed? How? how tell us about that a little bit. Um, I think we got at least meetings with most of the people we emailed, um, and it was it was it was often like, hey, you know, we did. I'd say, you know, we're looking for someone like you. Do you is there anyone in your network that you would recommend? And, mm. and so less less being like, I want to hire you, and right. more. Is there anyone else? And then if they were interested, then they would come talk to us. Okay. A lot of people just clear were not good fits. And we've always kind of had an ethos of saying we would rather hire slowly and hire nice, talented people as opposed to um, you know trying to fill positions. So we have never, and, and if, if I have any say in it, we will never use recruiters so, like, if a recruiter emails us, we just say, we'd be happy to hire you, the recruiter. <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> uh, that's we funny. Test to see if, you know, if, a, if an engineer understands us, if they can actually apply themselves. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we built the team pretty slowly. So it was five of us initially. We were based in Palo Alto, California, um, because Lee was still in Santa Cruz, and Michelle and I were in San Francisco, and so Palo Alto was the halfway point between the two, and so we'd take the train down. Uh, every day, and then you know we just locked ourselves in a room and uh, and started building, and it took us about three months. It was March when we could have the first real customer sign up. Um, the first customer was actually someone we were trying to recruit out of Google, a guy named Lindsey Simon, uh, who signed up his website dishola.com, which was sort of Yelp but reviewing individual uh, dishes. Yeah, okay. we broke we broke his website probably ten thousand different times, and he was very patient um, about us. And he and we actually have never ended up hiring him, but uh, but he stayed a stayed a good friend. So so, so uh, those early customers, how did you end up targeting? I mean, I know it was an accidental with him, but with the first batch, did you go after a specific vertical? How did you get your initial first uh, couple of hundred, let's say, a couple of fifty? So the unfair advantage that we had was because we had started this open source project, we had a mailing list. Ah, uh, uh, the mailing list. So we had about oh, look at that. That is an unfair advantage. You don't it understand was, how many was, startups was, would love access to that email list. Well, start an open source project then, right? Yeah. I mean, that, there we go. That's how, how this happens. And, and by the way, if you want to come work for us, be contributing to open source, be contributing to that, because that's how we, we find a lot of the great people um, because they've proven themselves in other in other media. And so, you know, our, our initial customers trusted us because 
we had started this thing and we'd never ask any of them. So we could send an email out that said, hey, this is Matthew from Project Honey Pot. We're starting this new thing. Are you willing to give it a try? And it was a pretty, it was a pretty big ask initially. Like we didn't have a website. We didn't have anyone who knew what we were. And we were saying, yeah, basically turn over the keys to your site and allow us to. We had one. We only had one data center, and we had like two servers. And it was based in Chicago, so we looked for people who were in the Chicago metropolitan area ah. in order to be the first users, because we figured we're going to make the world worse for most of it, but we'll at least make it a little bit better for them. That's really great. So you segmented your first initial batch to that, and yep. what was that first email that you're saying? Oh, we're thinking of doing this new thing. Uh, Why don't you try us out? Was it all self-serve <laughs> at that point? Did you have to onboard them? Uh, it was pretty. Self it was actually more self-serve than it was it is today. So well, the way that Cloudflare originally got people to sign up was, um, so Cloudflare, you sign up by changing some DNS settings at your registrar. Right. Um, and, and today the way it works is we give you kind of instructions and you go change them yourself. We thought that that would be too hard for people initially. And so we actually built a little crawler that would log in, like mint.com, wow, yeah. log into your GoDaddy account. Right. Go scrape all your DNS records and then change your name servers um, for you. And so the first email was actually—I mean, it's pretty embarrassing for a security company. We wrote to people out of the blue, and we said, "Hey, we're from Project Honeypot, um, and we're starting this new thing. Go to this particular page that is just a blank white page, and it just said." <laughs> oh God! Oh my goodness! Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is—we're not fishing at all. <laughs> and remember that you know we're targeting people who were particularly security conscious. Of course, sure. yeah. And the crazy thing is, like ninety percent of people said, "Okay." Well, that's well, it's not so crazy. You guys have established a lot of trust with Honeypot. It sounds to me like, and yeah, I'm assuming you didn't do a ton of emailing. So when they did hear from you, they're like, "Oh yeah, these guys." They're probably excited, yeah. But it was still pretty like. After the fact, we thought, in every once in a while, people would be like, how do I know you're really Like, how do I know you're really you? Exactly. It's um, <laughs> the right question to ask. But so we got, we, you know, we, would, we were very careful in who we targeted initially. We wanted to have people who participants in the community and who kind of got it. And we didn't just do, we still to this day have not done a, just a mass email of all the Project Honeypot community. It's one of those things on our to-do list that keeps getting pushed down. Okay. Uh, but... Um, so we, we reached out to people, we got them to sign up, we got our first hundred customers. We took the team, which had grown to, I think, six people at the time. We took everyone to Las Vegas. Yeah. Cool. Vegas, so, baby. And uh, and went dune buggying out in the sand dunes and awesome. all kinds of things. But it was really, it was really hard to get our first hundred customers. And today, you yeah. know, a hundred customers every half hour or something. So it, it definitely changes over time. Although we've, we've actually made the sign-up process harder because... The, the really awful thing with the initial sign-up process was it was so easy that people would do it and then they wouldn't they wouldn't understand what they'd done and something would break and they wouldn't know how to undo it. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and they, they wouldn't know that it was necessarily us and so we had sort of separated cause and effect too much right. and, uh, and so it was kind of a funny thing to when we redesigned it to go into launch to actually introduce friction to the sign-up process to let people know, hey, what you're about to do is a big deal Mm -hmm. And you're actually doing it, right. and we took away that ability to actually go in and, and make this updates automatically. Um, and it's that hasn't it's turned out that hasn't been a gaining item. For so, so obviously, that's a difficult decision to make. That's one of those really hard like uh, activation phase of your acquisition funnel. It's a, a yeah, it wasn't hard because because the problems that it created were so significant. So mm -hmm. think like we would um, someone would sign up with an email that was like you know, bob at example.com, and then they would sign example.com up, and then yeah. break the DNS, and then we would have no way of communicating them with them because oh, we Yeah, because their email, yeah, yeah. You do that once or twice, and you stop, uh, and you stop, stop, stop doing that, yeah, and they <laughs> let them handle it. So uh, now that, you know, we're uh, here a couple years, several, you know, two or three years later, what, uh, I know you said you're not really doing any marketing, and, and it's, it's a wonderful place to be. What what's really working for you guys? How are you acquiring all your new customers now? Is it through platforms like WordPress and the plugins? Like what what's really working? So, you know, we we had lots of theories on how we would acquire customers. Like we thought that working with hosting providers would be a big channel. 
Um, and we do that. We've almost all of the largest hosting providers have Cloudflare directly in their, their control panel, but that, that's less than 20% of our customers come to us that way, and they're usually some of our smallest customers come that way. Okay. Um, I think that the things that have really worked for us um, are, one, just delighting existing customers. So um, you, it's, it's remarkable how many times you know, someone will be using us and then they'll write to us two years later and say, hey, I've been using you for two years, and it turns out I'm the CTO of the New York Times, uh -huh. so, you know, maybe we should talk about my day job, not just my hobby blog. And so mm -hmm. solving problems for people and then using that as an entree to larger customers has been, has been very effective. The other thing which is just surprisingly uh, effective for us is we – we solve really hard technical issues. So, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to scale to the scale that we've had and do it efficiently and effectively and cost effectively um, is is hard. And we've got a really smart technical team, and that then produces a lot of stories. And so, you know, this wasn't this was sort of something we discovered. It wasn't so much something that was there, but um, we like to just tell those stories and right, say, right. Here's the data store that we're using, and here's the file system that we're using, and here are the hardware decisions we're using, and you know we're running into this issue with switches, and it caused this problem. Gotcha, gotcha. So solving these technical problems, publish them, and then getting all this inbound traffic from your blog—that's been a big driver. And people really, we we keep thinking. I mean, the mistake we keep making is. We sort of try to dumb down the technical post to reach a broader audience, right. and everyone writes back immediately and says, "No, no, throw in more technical details." Yeah, give me the and, details. You no, know, what what's worked? It's it's great. I, like the comments I love are things where someone says, "Gosh, I don't feel like I understood all this, but at least I understand a little bit more as a result of it." And so I think that the lesson for us has been: don't talk down to your users. Um, mm -hmm. And, and really, you know, tell them, be as transparent as possible about, about the problems you're having and how you're solving them and, and how that works. And that, that has been probably, and again, we don't think of that as marketing. We just think of that as, as just telling the stories of, you know, what we did today at work. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, we don't, we don't have a calendar of, you know, we're going to do a blog post on this day. Yeah, and I was going to ask you about the editorial. You know, you're just kind of just doing it ad, ad hoc. So is this the, all, the, all, the, all members of your company or is this a certain group of people? How do you handle that? God, I wish I could get everyone to do it. Um, <laughs> it's hard. So just because you're a great developer doesn't necessarily mean you're a great writer. Right. Um, and, some, and writing is actually, you know, writing, public speaking are things that are hard for a lot of, a lot of folks. Right. Um, you know, we're, we're very fortunate that we have a lot of people here who do like to tell the stories. And then, but a lot of times, you know, that, that's the role that, again, since I have been removed from, I have no technical responsibilities anymore. I'll, I'll, I don't even have, I have three lines of code that are left in the entire code base, and I check every morning to see. <laughs> They're still in there. <laughs> um, and that's, but that's, that's out of, Hundreds of thousands of lines of code. You know, I'm I'm down to down to very little. But you know, a lot of times my role becomes how can I listen to you know the interesting engineering uh, that's being done and then translate that into into kind of the stories that we can tell about what we're doing. And that's, that's great. I'm I'm looking at one right here. The story of a little DNS Easter egg. What a, that's a, what, a, what a great title. You got yeah. Easter egg and very, DNS in there. Very, I mean, it was such a crazy. It was. I mean, that was such a crazy thing. So it was. We had a we had a problem, which was. We our DNS system wasn't keeping up with our growth. Um, we made a what was a in, absolutely insane decision, which was we're going to build our own DNS server, which nobody does. Right. Um, we spent, you know, Ray on our team, who's this brilliant engineer, spent a bunch of time actually building it and built it in a way that was super extensible, so that we can do plugins and other things. And then another another team member, uh, Ian said, oh, you know, I can have some fun with this, and so I'll, I'll make it so that if you type certain commands in, you can see what jobs, you know, we're currently hiring. And, and, it, and, and so that then becomes a story, which is we had a problem, here's how we solved it, and here are the cool things that we can do with it as a result. And, you know, again, I think those are, those are really fun. Uh, well, well fun so, so your role, would you say, when you heard these guys are, you guys going to be doing this, did, are you kind of helping them... Uh, are they writing a little bit of it, and then you'll go in and you'll kind of edit it out? Or how, how, where do you, where do you fit it? Depends. In? You know, it really depends. It depends on what. If someone wants to write it soup to nuts, then that's great because that's just that's 
less. Um, I, I don't like being the bottleneck in these things, but uh, uh, and so and then in other cases, um, it it's it's they write a little bit, and then then we'll have other people on the team help edit it. Um, and then in other cases, I'll write write it you know from start to finish. So the DNS one I wrote. Um, another one of the most popular blogs we wrote was one of our network engineers. Um, discovered that Google was was offline for a significant portion of the web and actually helped get it back online. Whoa. As a result, got you know Google sent him a whole care package of thank you gifts and all all kinds of things. Um, but and he wrote that he wrote that entirely himself and got to tell kind of the story of here here's how I discovered this problem. Here are the people I called to solve it. You know here's 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 what you know here's how it worked. And that um and again. Just talking about things is really important, but this doesn't work if if we were building like an iPhone app to tell people when they're running late. Right. It's just not a hard technical problem. Mm -hmm. uh, and you know, I, I think that the the lesson that I have learned from this when we started this, I remember when I remember sitting in the office of of someone who was an early advisor to us um, and. We were describing what we were going to do at Cloudflare, and Michelle and I were, and, and he said, okay, so you're sort of building a CDN. Michelle and I looked at each other, and then we looked back at him, and we were like, yeah, yeah, that's what we're building. And we walked out of the meeting, and we were like, what does CDN mean? <laughs> Which is terribly embarrassing to admit. Um, but what was, what was important about that was we didn't know everything about how to build this. Um, we, we were interested in the topic. We had some sense of how it could, that it could be built, right. um, but we weren't. We didn't sort of map out all four corners when we started. No, I I love this. I, I love it. You have a general idea. You know the space a little bit, and you're starting to get really passionate about it. And you built your team, and here you are, several years later. Well, and the important thing there is that. That that then allows you the flexibility to think really, really big. Um, it takes as much time and effort to build an iPhone app that tells you when you're running late, which maybe is a interesting. I mean, but it takes as much time to do that as it does to build us. And you know, we have a team that's a. It, it was eight people that essentially built the core of what we built. I mean, that's 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 a normal team, and yet. Our mission is to build a better web. Yeah, such a big vision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, incredible. And and yeah. so as a result of that, like the upside is is infinite. It's tremendous. It's tremendous. That we can interact with is is so much larger, and the quality of the talent is hard because people want to solve hard hard problems. Yeah, yeah. They want yeah. motivated by things that are there, exactly. and so you know, the 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 sort of the unpopular advice that I would give to entrepreneurs is that you know if you've got a really big idea and even if you don't totally get it go for it right uh, but if you don't think about whether your time is better spent building something which you know we all know in our hearts is never going to really just change the world right. or it's better spent going and learning from teams like the folks that are changing the world. So the folks at Box or Dropbox or Square or right. Twitter, Cloudflare, you know, these companies that are rocket ships. Right. And, and it's a, it's, I would hate it if somebody gave me that advice. Um, I know, I, I know, I know. Because you, you want to do something on your own. Yeah, yeah. Pull the swallow over here. Yeah, um, it is. You know, like it's, it's one of those things where until it's going to take a significant portion of your life and you know you don't get to do it again right. and so you know if you're gonna do it are you gonna do it and and learn how to find the big thing and build the networks and build the teams and build the experience working for someone like Cloudflare right. or going to do it by starting something yourself and if you've got an idea and it's big go for it right. if you've got an idea and it's gonna be yet another app then I don't know. Maybe I, I think I, about that a little bit more. No, I hear you. So no, uh, is, you never know when it's going to be Instagram. That's true. You never know. So mm -hmm. I, I do want to actually. We don't have a lot of time, but I want to get into um, uh, the big topic of recent times is the whole NSA thing, the whole security thing, every, you know, privacy thing. We're, uh, this is a huge problem. This is yeah. a huge worldwide problem. 
I, I, I think I even tweeted out earlier that I think this is a great opportunity for entrepreneurs to get into. Uh, what is what do you think in terms of an entrepreneurial, um, you know, mindset to attack this? So, so I think I mean this is an issue that I spend an enormous amount of time thinking about, and 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 that is something that you know I think that a lot of tech firms don't spend enough time actually thinking through, especially small startups. I mean my. My background is I, you know, I, I used to be a law professor. I went to law school. I did, you know, a bunch of other things, and so, you know, I obsess over this stuff because fundamentally, you know, our business is one of trust, and if we are turning our user data over to anyone, whether it's a government or, um, you know, an advertiser or anyone we would instantly lose trust. It takes five minutes to sign up for Cloudflare, but it takes about 30 seconds to turn us off. Right. And so the biggest risk to our business has nothing to do with competitors. It has nothing to do with anything else. It has to do with us losing trust. And so we have to ensure that we are never put in a position where we can be forced to turn over data that we don't want to turn over. And so, um, so with regard to any of the requests that have come in, um, to date, like we've never been a part of Prism, we've never been a part of anything that's like Prism. We don't the we don't let anyone run equipment on our network, and we've to date have never had requests to do that. We do we do get a lot of law enforcement requests, and you know you have to as a company in our position like ours make a set up a policy and make judgments that make real sense. So set terrorism aside for a second, because that makes everyone crazy, and just think about you know the horrible things that do happen on our network. So imagine that there is a website that has a picture of an eight-year-old girl and she's being sexually abused, right. and the metadata from the picture indicates that in the last two hours um, the picture was taken and posted, and we get a law enforcement request and it says we need to know who's the site owner behind that site. It's a no-brainer that that should happen, and there is a role for proper restrained law enforcement, which is online. Right. But tech companies have to ensure that they are neither making the job of law enforcement significantly easier nor significantly harder merely by existing. Right. And so, what we work really hard at Cloudflare at doing is how do we ensure that we can never provide information that you wouldn't be able to get without Cloudflare existing. And so we actually hired um, a guy onto our team a little while ago who spent seven years at Apple designing all of Apple's DRM systems. Hmm. Because we're getting into DRM, like I could care less about that. Right. But we do want to ensure that if we're logging data or storing data that to provide services for our users, that that data we can never be forced to communicate that that it's secret even from us gotcha. and, and and so you know my advice to other startups would be if like if the marshal knocks at your door it's terrifying and you should you have every right to be terrified but you have also the right and the responsibility to push back on that and the thing that we've learned is that when you do push back and say listen no, we're not going to turn that over, and here's why. Right. That, by and large, the requests are fairly reasonable, and and you and you can and you can fight them. Right. Um, if right. you ever do receive a request which is unreasonable, mm -hmm. um, then you know don't hide in the sand. Um, reach out to me. Reach out to the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Cool. Reach out. Oh, I like that. I like that. No, this is great. Absolutely, yeah. There's a community out there to support you. Yeah, and that's you know, and so we have. There have been requests that we've received that we have thought were abusive and overly broad, and we have, in certain cases, actually sued the federal government in order to say, no, we're not going to turn that over. Awesome. And uh, uh -huh. and while you know we're, and the good news is that you can win those fights, and so um, and so again. The, it's it, it's not a black and white issue. It's not there shouldn't be law enforcement online, or or we should monitor everything. If companies owe a responsibility to their users, yeah. to stewards of the data that their users are trusting with them, I, I, com I completely agree. Yeah. I, I, what I really want to know is what uh, 
what opportunities are there for startups to go after now that this whole NSA scandal has happened? What, in your opinion? Um, well, I think that we're about to enter in just a new golden age of cryptography. I mean, there's going to be a lot of work which is in that space. I don't know how much opportunity there is around startups. I mean, maybe there's there's something um, there, but I think it's that these are going to be standards which get developed by the community and are fairly open and, and, and trustworthy, and I think it would be hard to, you know, build another RSA um, around that. Um, you know, I think that what I would think about is you, you take companies like all the storage companies that are out there, the and you look at how have they been, were they architected from the beginning in order to ensure that data is secure and private? Um, and and there are a lot of them that just weren't, um, you know, without without naming specific names. Dropbox. I think these things, ever, they're going to re-engineer it into the product, but it's it, once you've started, it's really hard to change right. the foundation. After thought, back, yeah. yeah, yeah. And so if you if you compare that with something like Bitcasa, which is you know a smaller a smaller company, but that they've said encryption is part of the standard from the beginning, and even our employees can't read your files. Right. I think that that's an interesting opportunity. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. looking at how that works, I think is interesting. The other one, what I would be working on if I weren't building Cloudflare is I think that there is a there's an opportunity to do something really interesting around email, mm -hmm. um, where you could actually create a service. What, what's here's what's terrifying about email. When you send an email from Google to Yahoo, it's completely in the clear, unencrypted. There is there's nothing that protects SMTP. And so if I'm if I'm um, the Chinese government, or the U.S. government, or the Belgian government, any government in the world, and I want to sit and listen in on that transaction, you can do that. And email dwarfs in terms of traffic the amount of traffic which is on the web. Right. And so there, there feels like there's an opportunity. And again, this is this is crazy, but to say, what if we built Gmail to take over email, and we did it in a way that there there was a secure transaction that was possible. It wasn't required, but it was possible. So that when I sent your email address, if it wasn't secured, a red bar would show up with a button that said, invite this person to have secure email. So you get this sort of viral. All right, get the viral loop going, yeah. <laughs> and then, and then but, but everyone's going to try and do this, but they're going to try and do it, pardon the vernacular, but half-assed. Okay. If you think that's a good idea, then rebuild Gmail. Rebuild the infrastructure. Wow, that's big thinking right there, man. But that's but again, you don't have to do it all day one, right. but that should be the direction. Yeah, that should be the direction, yeah. That, yeah. The foundation. This yeah. app yeah. that plugs into it. It's how could we rebuild it fundamentally? And what I know is that you when you have big organizations like Salesforce adapting Google, and you have all mm -hmm. these organizations that are saying we don't want to run our own mail servers, but they're all completely dissatisfied with the underlying solution of of an advertising company managing their email, right? right? Yeah, That's yeah. a deeply unsettling thing. Yeah. Uh, I mean, there are lots of companies that pitch us and say, "Would you use Would you use this product?" If somebody built that, and we can ensure that it was reliable, and we can ensure that it worked, and you can ensure that it it was Gmail, but not run by Google, and had a little bit extra security built into it. Right. We did, mm -hmm. and that's and so that's um, wow. that, I that's that's a really interesting. That's area. great. No, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> great idea for yeah, our audience or any entrepreneurs listening. Um, before we let you go, I want to. Do you have any? Um, how is open source the landscape of that looking? Any opportunities for businesses in that area, or any hot things that you're seeing? You know, the hard thing with open source companies. Some of them turn out to be great. So you look at um, Red Hat has been, you know, obviously a very successful company built around that. You have um, Cloudera, which is, you know, a successful company which is being built to support Hadoop, uh, Hortonworks that's similar. Um, and, and then you have you have companies that are trying to get started with that, like the Nginx team. And we 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 use Nginx extensively, and we we really like the Nginx team. I think that it's the hard thing about open source business models 
is that um, oftentimes the business model is essentially a consulting model on right. how you can better run this piece of this piece of software, mm -hmm. and and for that to work, the piece of software has to be so kind of broken and flawed that you need to hire consultants in order to run it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Hadoop is a is a giant steaming pile of poop. And uh, and so that's why Cloudera is able to build a business around it right. is because if it needs a support yeah. in order, um, you know, something like Linux is it's an incredibly complicated beast that touches every part of your organization. And so if you're a big enterprise, you're willing to pay for that. If you're going to try and build a business around one of these open source projects, it has to be so big and so complicated that you can almost find a way to slot into it. Um, I'm a lot more skeptical about the things that are trying to build around, you know, small little niche areas. Um, like again, like the, I think the NGX thing is brilliant, and I think it'll be interesting to see how they figure out how they can take what is. Are relatively easy to install, relatively easy to get up and running. You know, small component in an overall in an overall infrastructure, the the web server, and then monetize that. And you know, I I, I root for them to be to be super successful, but I think that there's going to be have to be some innovation around the business models uh, that are there. Um, and so that you know, the open source stuff works. You can't you can't start an open source project. And expect to turn it into a commercial project. Right. You can start an open source project, and it can grow into a commercial project. Right. Um, but, but you know, don't don't put the cart before the horse. If mm -hmm. you're... Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, the way the way that you guys use um, the the honeypot is genius. You know, what do you think about things like Twitter's Bootstrap, or are there other ways that uh, you know businesses can? Uh, adopt some piece of open source or you know use some of it like you were able to use it for customer development and research and all these things that were so invaluable uh, you know what are other ways that a startup might be able to use open source uh, well I mean if you're I mean, what one great way is just to use it right I mean so we use bootstrap and we use tons of tons of open source uh, software and you know we have uh, and we contribute back to that pretty pretty actively if you go to you know, Cloudflare's GitHub page, you can see um, all of the software that we're giving back uh, to the community, and we have just an, an kind of an internal rule that says that there's no piece of software that we're going to write which is so clever that it's going to give us a sustained long-term competitive advantage. And so let's open source um, all of, you know, any any piece of software which wow, is... That's great. Yeah. And so, you know, we there's a lot of stuff that's there, um, you know, and, and it's all, a lot of it's very to what it is that we that are for our particular needs, but um, you know I think that the best thing that startups can do. So if you're an individual um, developer and you want to come work at a company like Cloudflare, get involved with with some of these these open source projects just so we can at least see see your work. And that's a great way that we hire hire a lot of people. If you're a open source project and you're starting to get real momentum. Think about how you continue to build that community and accept more people into it and grow a broader adoption base. And again, someday, you know, those things that start out as hobbies might turn into uh, into real businesses. But they, they have to be successful hobbies. Yeah, for yeah you, you got to get that momentum going. Um, so before we let you go, um, any last piece of parting advice for small teams out there struggling uh, to to get that momentum or to get their their first customers? What would you tell them? Um. You know, I would say that, and again, this is somewhat somewhat the unpopular advice, but you have to constantly ask yourself whether or not you're doing the right thing. And if you're struggling and you're fighting and you're in the middle of sort of a, an ongoing slog that, that you don't see light at the end of the tunnel, it's better to panic early. Um, and, and, you know, you have a responsibility as an entrepreneur um, not just to yourself, but also to the teams that you're hiring. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at a room of 50 people who depend on us making smart decisions in order to eat, right? right? And that's that's a real responsibility. And then, you know, there are just only so many seconds in your life, and you want to make sure that you're surrounding them working on problems that are hard and interesting and with people who you really like. Right. And you, if you look around and you say, this isn't fun anymore, don't, there's there's really no shame in, in in saying 
I'm going to try a different direction, or I'm going to try a different, you know, I'm going to try a different idea, or I'm going to try to completely go into something else. And oftentimes, you know, getting too stuck on what your original idea is 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 a real is a real curse that can harm us. We're the exception. Like we we started out saying we're going to build this edge service and we're going to solve the performance and security problems and we're going to you know build a huge network and we kind of just executed on our business plan. That's a story that doesn't happen very often. It's right. not even a story that you should necessarily look to. Like Google's original business plan was to sell appliances to index corporate documents. Like how big a market is that? That would have been a horrible little business. All right. Yeah. Odeo, uh, which turns into Twitter, had a complete. You know, it was a side project. It never. It was never supposed to be what it was. Yahoo was just kind of. Jerry Yang's like, way of organizing his own bookmarks. These things, again, when they work, they go like rocket ships. Right. And if you're on that, then that's then it's a privileged experience because you don't get more than one or one of them in your life. Right. And so, you know, enjoy it if you're on it. If you're not on it, then think about what you can do to sort of to change it. But if it's if you think that buying a few more, you know, ad AdWords uh, is going to really make, uh, or or you know, figuring out some way to, you know, you know, turn your your conversion up from you know one percent to one point one percent is going to make it. I mean, if you're over optimizing early, then then you're solving the wrong problem. The problem is you haven't found a big enough problem, or you haven't addressed it in a way that people care enough about, right. and so. You know, constantly be reevaluating that and think about how can we go bigger. How because that the world actually solving big problems is actually easier than solving little problems because the hardest part of solving problems is finding people to work on them with you. I want to build this little iPhone app. People go, eh. yeah, no big deal. They're not excited. Yeah, I want to rebuild the web. Right. People go. Wow, that sounds fun. I don't know. It could be a part of him. In bare minimum, even if we go bankrupt tomorrow, which is zero risk of, but even if that happens, I'll learn a lot. Right. Um, and and that and that ends up, you know, that ends up being a really attractive uh, story for people. Wow, that is yeah. wonderful. What a great parting advice there. Yeah. What a great lens to to look yes. perspective. No, that was that was really great. I'm awaiting the hate mail on. <laughs> I dare you to encourage entrepreneurs. No, no, no. That was awesome. That was beautiful. Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on today, Matthew. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Yeah, well, thank you, thank you for uh, thank you for having me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for your time. And we'll and definitely be. Yeah, we'll definitely be keeping in touch and seeing where you guys are at in about six months or so. Terrific. Uh, always, always happy to, uh, always happy to chat. So, uh, good luck. Take care. Um, good luck to everyone listening.